We invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week. Matthew 7. A middle-aged married couple moved into an older neighborhood. The first morning, as the husband was pouring his coffee, he looked out the back window, and he noticed his neighbor's house behind and observed how dirty the siding was. Turning to his wife at the table, he said, some kind of man of the house leaving his house dirty like that. She remained silent. Every day for the next month, the husband would think the same thing as he peeked out the back window. Finally, one day, he came to the kitchen to get his morning coffee, and he looked out the window, and he was shocked. He said, honey, I guess our neighbor finally manned up and cleaned the siding on his house. His wife smiled and said, before you woke up this morning, I washed the windows. That little parable gets at our sinful tendency to be critical of others without considering that we might be the problem. We like to blame shift, uh, point fingers, and even posture ourselves in social settings to appear as the most righteous in the room. Yet all the while in our proverbial closets there are sins that we are hiding. We may have reasoned in our minds that these sins are no big deal, but in fact they are, and they are clouding our judgment. You know, our Lord has saved us, not so that we can practice a life of hypocrisy, but to recognize it for what it is, to repent of it, and exercise true judgment. I believe the text before us this morning is... uh, a merciful call of our Lord Jesus to come into the light about our hypocrisy, to come clean about it, so He can use us more effectively for His work in this life. And don't we all want that, church? Don't we want to be a useful tool in the hand of our Redeemer? I I do. I know you do as well. So I've taken my cue for the title from Jesus' illustration in Matthew 7. 1 through 5. The title for this message is Taking Hypocrisy to the Wood Shop or the Woodshed. I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to go with, but both of them seem to fit the Wood Shop or the Woodshed. You'll uh, obviously see why here in a little bit. But we're going to look at three particular things this morning. The first will come from verses 1 through 2, the next will come from verses 3 through 4, and then the final thing we look at will be an application from. Verse 5. All right, so turning to this passage, let's look first at a prohibition to hypocritical judgment. A prohibition to hypocritical judgment. Jesus says, beginning in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. The word judge here can have multiple meanings, uh, just like 
Words can have different meanings in different contexts based on the context in which it is found. The same thing is going on here with the word judge. The word judge, writes D.A. Carson, can mean to discern, to judge judicially, to be judgmental, to condemn. And the context here in Matthew 7, 1 through 5 argues that the verse means do not be judgmental. Uh, Do not adopt a critical spirit, a condemning attitude, end quote. To put it another way, what Jesus is prohibiting his disciples from doing is practicing hypocritical judgment. I think the illustration that Jesus gives in verses 3 through 4 and then the designation that he gives in verse 5, which is the word hypocrite, is evidence enough of just exactly what kind of judging Jesus is condemning. It's the hypocritical kind. So what Jesus demands from us is that we we watch out for this in our lives. He doesn't want us to judge this way. And I think it's important that we get clarity on this church. It's important because I'm sure you've heard this verse misused before. Uh, It's very possible that you've had this verse used against you at some point. Maybe you were sharing with somebody the biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman, and the response that you got from somebody was, wait, Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. Or or maybe there's some other issue that you were calling sin that's going on in the life of somebody, or in the culture, and somebody responded to you with this verse, hey, judge not lest she be judged. Anybody that happened to anybody before? Raise your hand like this, right? (laughs) Once. Only once for David. All right. Now, this can happen, right? This, This verse is often used in our culture as a way to say, wait a minute, you know, everybody's got their own truth. We must not impede upon their own truth. There's no absolute truth. It goes back to the the idea that we live in a culture of moral relativism, that there is no absolute truth. In fact, though, there, there is, and we learn that from God's Word. So this is not an accurate use of what Jesus is talking about here with His saying, judge not. And in fact, what we learn from the New Testament about our relationship to the matter of judgment is that we are to be a discerning people. That we are to call evil, evil, and good, good. And here are a couple of verses that clearly demonstrate that we are to be discerning. 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We are to listen to the things that people say and make a kind of judgment call about what they say in light of what the Scripture says about that. Jesus Himself teaches in John 7.24 to stop judging by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. A right judgment. And that is judgment based on the truth. So you see, as disciples of Jesus, we're not to dull our swords of discernment. Rather, we're to come to God's Word and and sharpen them. We may ask, why? Why is it 
so that we can win an argument. No, that's not the reason why we come to sharpen our discernment. We come to sharpen our discernment so we can think right. We can live right. Okay, And that when we go out into this world and we share the gospel with the unbeliever, we have a, a life testimony that matches the message that we are preaching so that we can have integrity. So we aren't to be an undiscerning people. In fact, a good case could be made that the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is our Lord teaching his people to be discerning. MacArthur observes this point. He says, If this greatest sermon by our Lord teaches anything, it teaches that his followers are to be discerning and perceptive in what they believe and in what they do, that they must make every effort to judge between truth and falsehood, between the internal and the external, between reality and sham, between true righteousness and false righteousness. In short, between God's way and all other ways. So Jesus is not wanting us to be undiscerning, to make no judgment calls in this world. That's not what he means by judge not that you be not judged. He wants us to exercise true judgment. Matter of fact, once we get to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to learn a little bit more about this with respect to church discipline. But for now, let's remember that we are to be discerning people who make judgment calls based on God's word. But that judgment has to be right judgment, which means that it can't be hypocritical. Jesus demands that we put away hypocritical judgment. And actually, there's a significant motivation for why we should follow Jesus on this. He says, again, judge not that you be not judged. And then notice how he explains this part about that you be not judged. He says in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is motivation here for not judging hypocritically. What do I mean? How is this motivation? Well, what Jesus is saying is that if you practice a critical spirit and you judge everybody else for doing things that you yourself are guilty of, God will judge you for that. More than that, if you go around with your measuring stick, checking to see if everyone else's morality measures up to that stick, just remember on judgment day, God will take that measuring stick and judge you with it. Now, just to be clear about some things before we move on, there is a judgment coming. There is a future judgment judgment coming. The scripture is very clear about this. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. In Acts 17.31, we read that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We learn from this verse in Acts, not only that there is a future judgment, but also that that judgment will be executed by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
there is a future judgment coming. Now, the good news for us Christians is that we don't need to fear that judgment which will result in eternal punishment in hell. We don't have to fear that judgment because the Scripture says that our Lord Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for us by His substitutionary death on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree. Romans 8.1 teaches that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 5.24 assures the believer that whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And notice that last verse, the believer does not come into judgment. But wait a minute, Matt, you just read a bunch of verses that say that we will face judgment. So what's going on here? Okay. Well, there is a judgment unto everlasting damnation, right? There is a judgment that God will bring the unbeliever to and they will face eternity away from the Lord's presence. And it is that judgment that Jesus has saved us from. The Apostle John said, you know, perfect love casts out fear. And the fear that he's talking about there is the fear of eternal punishment. And that a sign of our maturity and our growth and the truth of what God's Word says is that we come to God's Word and believe what it says about us, that we are those who will not come under that eternal judgment because of what Jesus has done. So we will not face that particular judgment, but we will face the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. We learn this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, we will face judgment as Christians, and that judgment will be based on our works since we had become Christians. It would be based on works since we had become Christians. Now, how does this relate to the subject of verse 2 in Matthew 7? Well, it simply means that if we have exercised a critical spirit in this life without showing any mercy, then we will be judged for that at the judgment seat of Christ. If we lacked in showing mercy to others, God will treat us much the same way at judgment. Write this verse down, James chapter 2, verse 13. James 2, 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So I think this fact should motivate us in our dealings with others to be cautious in having a critical spirit, to be careful to not practice hypocritical judgment. So that was a prohibition to hypocritical judgment. Now let's look at some questions that expose the absurdity of hypocritical judgment. This is what Jesus is going to do with his questions in verses 3 through 4. And this is where we get that woodshop illustration. Jesus says in verses 3 through 4, 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Let's identify just some things in this illustration that I think are, are helpful as we try to understand what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus uses the image of wood in the eye. And I believe he's using that image to refer to character flaws that impede spiritual perception. To put it another way, the wood in the eye is a figure of speech for sins that keep us from living by faith. They keep us from living by faith. And so with that understanding in place, it's not hard to see what Jesus means with the speck versus log contrast. The the speck is a reference to small character flaws, whereas the log is a, a reference to large character flaws. Overall, then, the illustration serves to show us just how ludicrous hypocrisy is. I mean, the very picture Jesus gives of a log sticking out of one's eye makes us go, that's unbelievable. Uh, a log can't stick out of a person's eye. Um, and I think that's right. In fact, the Greek word for log refers to a piece of, of heavy timber such as a beam used in roof construction or to bar a door, to quote one of the leading lexicons. So this is not something that could fit inside of your eye. Uh, Jesus is using hyperbole here. This is a figure of speech, an absurd illustration to make a point. And the point is this, hypocrisy makes no sense. Hypocrisy makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to look at your brother and see a little speck in his eye while you have wood beam in your own eye. And this is why Jesus says in verse 3, why? Notice the the why here. Why do you do that? Why do you focus on the minuscule problems in others when you leave unaddressed glaringly huge issues in your own life? That's the impact of what Jesus is saying in verse 3. R. Kent Hughes serves up some conviction on this point. He says, we find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. We use some strong term for someone else's sin, but a euphemism for our own. We easily spot a speck of phoniness in another because we have a log jam of it in our own lives. Furthermore, we especially hate our own faults when we see them in others. You remember the story of, of David's sin of committing adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba and scheming the death of Uriah? We know this story. Well, after David committed these sins, the prophet Nathan came on assignment from the Lord to confront David for his sins. The text reads at 2 Samuel 12, 1-7, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Upon hearing this, David's anger was greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As long as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then you know the story, right? Nathan turns to David and says, You're the man. You see, David was willing to condemn the man and the parable to death for his injustice that involved a lamb. But up until that point, he had not observed the wood beam in his own eye that was his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. David is a sad but clear example of the kind of hypocrisy that our Lord is condemning in verse 3. You know, we are easily led away to a wrong perception and evaluation of things when we ourselves are being hypocritical about things. But verse 4 seems to take the illustration just a little bit further. Jesus moves to condemn the act of telling others to remove their sins when we are guilty of the same sins. Again, he says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Jesus brings the illustration to the realm of trying to teach other people things that we ourselves are guilty of. Teaching others things that we ourselves are guilty of. I remember this one time I told my son Calvin to stop grumbling about something he was doing. I said, son, stop going, ugh. And he said to me in the most respectful tone, but dad, you do the same thing. And, you know, the inner lawyer was kind of working for a second there. I'm the dad. You don't say that to me. You don't correct me. But I pretty quickly realized he was right. And I can't even remember the situation. It was probably the weed eater. You know, I mean, you know your problems with the weed eater, right? Trying to get the line in it. I don't know. But it doesn't matter because he was right. And I was trying to tell him to do something that I myself was unwilling to spot in my own life. It's hard for things to go over well with other people when you tell them to do things that you yourself are doing or to stop doing things that you yourself are not stopping doing. That was a weird way to put it, right? (laughs) Write that one down. You know, in John 12, we read about Mary wiping the feet of Jesus with this expensive ointment, right? The beautiful story. We typically remember just that beautiful story. Mary taking this very expensive ointment and breaking it over the feet of our Lord. It was just six days before his death and then his burial. And uh, Jesus will say later on, this is preparation for my own burial. What she did was an amazing act of worship. We remember that. But one of the things we forget in that text is the story of Judas. We tend to remember the act of devotion, but we forget Judas' hypocrisy in this act. The text reads this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas looking at this act of worship and saying, this should have been sold to be given to the poor. Well, what do we know about Judas? Let me just read the rest of the editorial comment by John on this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas here wants to judge Mary for being unjust in this instance while he himself would lace his pockets with the money Jesus and his disciples carried for ministry. Judas is an example of hypocrisy. But what's unique about his example is that he was calling out Mary for a speck, a speck that didn't even exist in her eye. And brothers and sisters, such is the problem of carrying around wood beams in our eyes. We can't see things clearly. We cannot see things clearly. Jesus instructs us on the danger of this hypocrisy in verses 3 through 4, but then he turns the corner in verse 5 to look at the application to rid ourselves of hypocrisy and judge others clearly. By the way, verse 5, very thankful for it for a number of reasons that we're going to look at. But Jesus doesn't leave us in our sin. He's going to help us overcome this sin so we can be the kind of people that he wants us to be. Look, let's look at verse 5. Jesus says, You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The instruction given here by our Lord is fairly simple. This is not complex. It begins really with the first order of things. If we are to if we are guilty of hypocritical judgment, we must first rid ourselves of it. Jesus says first take the log out of your own eye. Now notice, he doesn't say go deal with the other person's problem, then you can deal with yours later. This is not something we can put on the back burner as it were. But Jesus comes right to us and says you've got to deal with this first before you can deal with other people. You've got to get rid of that. And we can go back to the Beatitudes on this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, remember, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? We, we have to say, Lord, I see my own sin and I do hate it. I see my need for your help, uh, your help to help me to kill this sin in my life. And the truth of the matter is the Lord will be gracious to not only forgive us of our sin, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only will He do that, but He'll restore us. He'll help us to repent. And then once we've forsaken the sin, notice this, we can help others. Okay, Jesus says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These words, see clearly, they're one word in the Greek. This Greek word occurs elsewhere to describe the blind man at Bethesda that Jesus healed. After an initial healing, the man could now see, but he could not see clearly. Uh, he said that when he looked at men, they looked like what? Trees. They looked like trees. This once blind man needed clarity of vision. And so Jesus then finished the healing, and then he could see clearly. 
So it is with the person who has removed hypocrisy from their lives. Their spiritual perception is no longer unclear. They can see clearly, and now that they can see clearly, they're in a place to be used by the Lord to help other Christians forsake their own sin. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it, that one of the things that is maybe behind this text that Jesus is giving us, and we can see from other passages of Scripture, is that you and I are in relationship to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we're family, right? And as family, we're to help each other out in becoming more like Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't go about this alone, do we? You know, the Lord didn't save us, put us on an island somewhere and say, figure it out. No, He saved us and put us in community with one another so that we can look at each other's lives and help each other become more holy. This is how sanctification works, together in community with other believers. And what Jesus is encouraging us with here in verse 5 is that we would be the kind of people that put away hypocrisy in our own lives, notice this for the purpose that we might advance the holiness in the lives of others. The Lord wants to use us in that manner. But his instruction here for us is that first we've got to deal with the hypocrisy in our own lives. We have got to come clean before the Lord and say, Lord, there is stuff in my life that keeps me from being able to love people well and to walk by faith. And I know that by your grace and the Holy Spirit that resides within me, the truth of the word of God, I know that you will help me with that. And Lord, the reason why I want to do this is not just because of your honor that's at stake, but I want to be a blessing to the community of believers that you've placed me in. So notice, first the order. Remove the hypocrisy, remove the log beam so that you can see clearly into the lives of others. Again, church, so we can fight sin together. Amen? We're in this together. May the Lord... Bless our endeavors in this, in this coming week.